Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is an Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice voice. of the U.S. Enhancing and protecting private wealth, Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to an Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. I hope, I truly hope, all of you had a great Christmas. I know I did. I love this time of year. Um, the only time of year I get a little bit sentimental and uh, reflect back and, and think about things. But last Wednesday on my, my regional show in northern Ohio, um, I had a little fun. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but there was a Seinfeld episode uh, years ago uh, about Festivus. Festivus, a holiday for, that's right, the rest of us. And uh, it was a made-up holiday uh, from the character uh, George Costanza's father and that kind of stuff. But the first, first part of Festivus was the airing of grievances. And... Uh, so Wednesday on the show, I, I aired some some grievances. And, and I got to tell you, I'm not a, uh, a big Christmas shopper. I have very little family left. It's, it's mainly just me and my wife uh, on my side. She has a sister, and they come over and that kind of stuff. But anyway, we went out and did a little bit of shopping. Um, everybody loves Uncle Gary because I shop at the bank and give out little envelopes. So that's that's easy. We talked about that last time. But we did go out and, and try to pick up some, a few gifts for everybody. And I, what, one of the things that just bothered me, and this is one of my grievances that I aired for Festivus uh, last week, was find something not made in China. It, it just aggravated me to no end. I can't tell you how much stuff I picked up and put back because it was made in China. Now, for those of you that listen to me a long time, you know that I'm not a made-in-America guy because I'm pro-union and and that kind of stuff. I'm a made-in-America kind of guy because I think we make the best stuff, and we do the best job making stuff. You know, I I picked up a, a bag of dog treats for my dogs, not for Christmas, just dog treats, and my wife said, where are they made? 
And I looked at it. You know what? It's distributed by a company in New Jersey, made in China. Do we really need to make dog treats in China? Are we saving that much money on a $5 item for our dogs? I mean, I I didn't buy them. I don't trust the stuff coming out of China to even feed to my dogs, let alone to eat myself or feed the family. I mean, my goodness, everything you pick up made in China. That's my grievance. Why can't we make it here? Now, in all fairness, quite a few jobs are being repatriated. Companies are are bringing jobs back, but only because China is raising their wages and makes it less effective. Now, I was born in the 50s, and as, as I've said many times, I'm not as old as I sound, but I remember the 60s, and I remember nobody wanted the crap coming out of Japan. Remember that? You didn't want anything made in Japan. Made in Japan signified that it was cheap and that we want American stuff. Well, we've just swapped out Japan for China recently, and everything is made in China. Now, I've had experience with manufacturing in China, and it's subpar. Had to have it redone again here. Uh, It was just uh, prototypes, but the prototypes, subpar. And quite honestly, I'm just sick of the crap. Now, one factor that goes into that we saw recently this week was what they call uh, inversions. Inversion is where a an American company will merge with or buy another company whose jurisdiction is in a country with a f- more favorable tax basis to the business. And President Obama and Treasury Secretary Jack Lew have been trying to go around Congress and write laws, invoke rules, trying to prevent inversions. Now, when I say going around Congress, I don't mean that they're they're going against Congress's wishes. I think Congress wants to prevent inversions also. But I think there's too many lobbying dollars there, and uh, Congress tends to make things more complex than what they are. But everybody's going about it the wrong way. You can't. Well, you you got to look at why companies want to leave this country, and they want to leave this country because of the high tax rates on foreign profits. So we have that one of the highest tax rate corporate tax rates in the world. So for these companies to make money outside the country and bring the money back very expensive. If they pay dividends, they're double taxed. That's after-tax money to the corporation, taxable income to you, the stockholder receiving the dividend. Well, that's very expensive to do that. And I think Mr. Liu, I think President Obama, I think Congress needs to step back and think, why not make the United States the best choice for business locations. Why not have other countries moving their headquarters here because of regulatory and tax favorability rather than 
penalizing our countries, trying to make them out to be bad, evil corporations that don't want to pay their fair share when Congress and the White House are trying to confiscate more than a fair share in taxes. You penalize your behavior, you get less of it. You reward a behavior, you get more of it. This is the Laffer curve. Less taxes on corporations will mean more revenue to the government and it'll mean more jobs and more companies staying here, new companies coming here. Now, what happened was uh, there was a uh, fertilizer maker called CF Industries out of Illinois that was merging with a company in Great Britain. So Jack Lew, Treasury Secretary, uh, tried to force a rule saying that nobody could uh, merge with companies in the United Kingdom and move their headquarters there. So what did CF Industries do? CF Industries did what corporations do. They said, okay, we're going to go ahead with the merger, but instead of being located in Great Britain, we're going to locate in the Netherlands now. Tax base is the same as Great Britain. They're going to get the same benefit. And not only did we get screwed, uh, Illinois got screwed out of some jobs, uh, but now Great Britain got screwed out of some jobs, unbeknownst to them. It was just our law. So we need to change that. We need to get back to making the United States the favorable place to do business. We need to bring those jobs back. And the only way we can do that is to have a higher incentive for companies to bring it back here than to be elsewhere. And I got to tell you, I know, I know it's just not cheap labor. Cheap labor is part of it. But when you're making crap, it doesn't matter how cheap the labor is, it's still crap. So having that made in America will be better for all of us, more so from a quality standpoint than just a cheap labor standpoint. Joining me next is Dan Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He specializes in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. We'll talk to him next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Daniel Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, specializing in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. Dan's work has been published in numerous outlets, including Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, USA Today, and Investors Business Daily. His blog is International Liberty and can be found at danieljmitchell.wordpress.com. A lot's been happening in Washington lately. Everything from the the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to the the recent spending bill. And I wanted to chat with you a little bit. What do you think of this spending bill that's going through the process right now? 
It's not good news for taxpayers. There's a lot of pork barrel spending, a lot of wasteful uh, programs that should be eliminated but are getting more money. Uh, the really bad news actually happened back in October. That's when they agreed to bust the spending caps. Mm. This spending bill that they're doing right now is simply the follow-up to that. They already agreed we're, we're going to spend more money, and this is the actual spending of the more money. And uh, as you probably know, they also have a special interest tax bill, the so-called right. extenders bill. So instead of cleaning up all the corruption and nonsense in our 75,000-page tax code, uh, they're making it more complex. It's, you know, it, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's not as if you know, we're doing more than just adding another straw to the camel's back, but mm-hmm. sooner or later, we're going to wind up being Greece. Yeah, and, and it's kind of disappointing because some of the conservatives uh, had pretty high hopes for uh, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the new speaker, and uh, already people feel a little let down by him. It, it is rather amazing that when Republicans only controlled the House and Democrats controlled the Senate and the White House, they were getting better results than they're getting right now when they control mm. the Senate and the House. Uh, so I don't know what's going on. I don't know whether it's McConnell's fault, Ryan's fault. Uh, I suspect, talking since I talked to a lot of these people on Capitol Hill, they're just so afraid that there's going to be a government shutdown and, and Obama's going to go, boo, it's your fault. Right. And, and even though they've won previous shutdowns. I mean, that, that's why we actually made some progress for a few years there uh, with, a, with a de facto spending freeze. Uh, but Republicans, their, their political consultants tell them, oh, no, if you do a shutdown, people will think you can't govern. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to govern a Leviathan. I want to shrink <laughs> Leviathan. Right. You know, I was reading one of your columns, and you make a great comment about the term bipartisan. And that agreement between the evil party and the stupid party is not very comforting. Now, I'm not sure which party has which label and is probably interchangeable. But uh, do you think we need a little more partisanship now rather than bipartisanship? Well, if bipartisanship simply means that both parties conspire to rip off the American people and keep America (laughs) on a path to becoming Greece, then no, I don't want bipartisanship. I don't want the established elite in Washington from both parties agreeing to figure out how to extract more money from me and to keep us on the wrong path. So, yes, I want some fighting. I I, I want a government shutdown if it means that we actually maybe at least slow down our our drift in the wrong direction. You know, in one of your other columns, you quote uh, Kevin Williamson from the National Review about these politicians like the Clintons and and President Obama and, and several others wanting to build a patronage society. What, what's a patronage society in relation to this? Well, the short answer is it's Greece. Okay. Uh, but to elaborate, what it means, is a, a patronage society means that you have interest groups and politicians engaging in backscratching, washing each other's hands. Uh, but basically, the, 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 they, they extract money from taxpayers and divvy it up among themselves. Uh, they reward themselves. They give themselves insider deals, insider contracts. They get rich, and we get poor. And, and what happens over time is as more and more people figure out how they can ride in the wagon and fewer and fewer people wind up pulling the wagon, that's when you get a societal breakdown like you have in Greece. 
you know, I, I heard on the radio, and I forget who said it the other day, that Americans have become a essentially a commodity for government, and we've outlived our usefulness pretty much. And you know, when you 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 talk about DMV, IRS, post office, all these types of of workers for the government, uh, they couldn't get anywhere near that kind of money in the public sector. And you make the great point that it's not the the people receiving the welfare checks, it's the people who write them and all the, the administration behind it. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, my friend Walter Williams, the great George Mason University economist, mm-hmm. uh, calls the bureaucracy poverty pimps because they're <laughs> the ones that really profit from the whole welfare state. They're the ones that get these uh, lavish six-figure salaries, these uh, enormous uh, uh, bloated government pensions. Uh, and again, this is exactly what we saw in Greece, mm-hmm. where you wound up having a society where more and more and more people uh, were, were riding in the wagon, either as the welfare recipients or the welfare distributors. Uh, uh, you know, it, it just becomes too much at some point. And I used the analogy earlier about the straw that breaks the camel's back. Well, mm-hmm. we keep adding straws on. Now, we're hopefully 15, 20, 25 years away from being grief, but what, what worries me is we're, we keep sliding slowly but surely in that direction. You know, when the, you know, and I'm with you, it's very disturbing to me because it seems like the American people are, are somewhat smarter or better informed than they have been in the past. In the past. And you would think that, you know, large groups – the, the, the population should have the power when when a government like ours, it's, you, you say that it's the small groups that have the power because the benefit of being in the large group is, is so small that there's really no motivation to do anything to fight the small groups. Yeah, th- this is what, uh, what public finance economists call uh, the concentrated benefits dispersed cost phenomenon. Now, that's a lot of academic <laughs> it's a mouthful. It doesn't really matter. But, but think about it. We only have a couple of thousand sugar farmers in the United States, mm-hmm. meat growers, cane growers, stuff like that. But they are very well organized. They give hundreds of thousands of dollars to the politicians, and they've gotten in place these sugar subsidies and tariffs and other favoritism where they get literally millions of dollars of benefit, and American consumers pay much, much higher prices than the world average. So you and I as consumers, we don't really understand why sugar is expensive. We might not even know it's expensive compared to the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, So 99% of us in America are hurt by the sugar program, but the tiny share of the population that benefits they're very well organized, and they give lots of money to the politicians. And that's an example of, of how the system works for the interest groups, not for the American people. Coming up, we'll continue our discussion with Dan Mitchell, the senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I'm speaking with Daniel Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. 
specializing in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. You know, I've said for a long time that it seems like there's too many large corporations in this country that are more in the business of getting money from from the government than they are in producing a product or service competitively and making a profit. I know it's been going on for a long time, but is there any light at the end of the tunnel on this this crony capitalism, this this harvesting the product of government money? Well, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a train. That's <laughs> it's it's, it's coming at us at 90, right? <laughs> uh, we, we've probably always had some cronyism and corruption with big mm-hmm. com- companies figuring out how to work the political system, even going back to the nation's founding. But it's just like the welfare state. If every single year more and more people get trapped in government dependency and every single year more and more companies figure out, hey, it's better to just rely on government contracts than actually produce things that consumers want, that is a very bad recipe. That is exactly the recipe that caused Greece uh, to become a failed state. And, and so, yes, I, I get frustrated because I feel like you know, working in Washington, I feel like I have a front row seat to a slow motion tragedy. That's incredible. It's it's uh, fascinating reading uh, all of your your columns and and watching your videos and stuff. The you know one of the the big things that that we talked about on the show that I haven't seen much much uh, press on, and that's the uh, Trans Pacific Partnership. Have you uh, have you done much uh, looking at that and, and analysis of of what that's going to do to us? No, we have a whole team of trade people at Cato who are looking at that, uh, and so I haven't had any particular reason to, to look at it closely. I, I will tell you that we love free trade, of course. Sure. Uh, we, you know, politicians and bureaucrats shouldn't be able to hold guns to our head and prevent us from trading with each other. Uh, the problem is sometimes you get these agreements where politicians from country A and politicians from country B come together, uh, and at best they give us managed trade and maybe – you know, on net, it's moving in the right direction, but it's very, very frustrating because the best approach is just to be like Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. There's free trade, not not trade where the politicians are giving permission, not trade where the politicians are putting in all sorts of environmental and labor union mandates and things like that. Uh, so, 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 you know, I confess I don't know the details about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but I know it's very frustrating to our free trade people at Cato, why we don't just follow the very successful model of Hong Kong, and instead we have this system that, that at least as a side effect, uh, winds up empowering lots of bureaucrats and politicians. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you reference Hong Kong because, you know, they're essentially owned by Beijing, which is kind of the, the polar opposite of Hong Kong. And uh, uh, you've referenced Greece uh, quite a few times, and and for the last, I don't know, maybe ten, twelve months, Greece hasn't really been in the news too much. Before it was headline every day. Um, obviously, they're they're probably not much better off than they were a year ago. Uh, what do we need to do? What what does this country need to do to not end up being Greece ten, fifteen years from now? We basically need to uh, reform our entitlements. That's the giant long-run problem. Uh, no ifs, ands, and buts about it. 
but we also should be shutting down things like the Department of Education, the Department mm-hmm. of Energy, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. We, you know, it's, it's not just the entitlement programs. It's the so-called discretionary uh, spending uh, programs as well. Uh, but, but here's the simple thing. In the long run, if government grows faster than the private sector, sooner or later will collapse. So obviously the solution is to make sure government grows slower than the private sector. In other words, if we can have 4% growth and we can somehow limit government so it only grows 2% a year, in the long run those trend lines will be very, very positive. Uh, And that's why some sort of spending limit rule, and I've been publicizing this thing called the Swiss debt break on my blog because that's a spending cap that has worked very, very well in Switzerland. It basically says government can grow 2% a year. And normally, even in a, in a, in a relatively weak economy, your nominal GDP is going to grow by more than 2% a year. So mm-hmm. we know what the answer is. We even have real-world examples of what works. The problem is our political system is so dysfunctional with Republicans and Democrats engaging in this bipartisan orgy of, of waste. Absolutely incredible. You know, we've spoken to uh, Veronique de Regis over to the Mercatus Center quite often about the Export-Import Bank. And uh, we both predicted uh, several months ago that they were going to revive it. It re- expired in, in June or something. And it looks like they, they have put that back in place and, and funding it. What's your thoughts on on uh, Export-Import Bank? Is that, once again, just one more one more cog in the wheel of, of big government? It's a very, very disgusting form of, of insider cronyism where a handful of big companies like Boeing and General Electric uh, get subsidies from the American taxpayers. Uh, and a lot of these subsidies actually wind up getting transferred uh, to people overseas. So mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the people who buy the products from GE and Boeing and elsewhere. Uh, so it really is a nauseatingly corrupt example of insider government, and it's really, really depressing. You know, I, I had to uh, had to notice Boeing, uh, biggest benefactor of the Export-Import Bank, of course, uh, big, big contracts around the world. And I, I read an article the other day where they're taking a lot of the corporate money and buying back their own stock. And to me, when a company buys back its own stock, that tells me it doesn't have anything better to do with its money. And uh, it just seemed ironic that they're the biggest benefactor of the export-import. And obviously, they've got a lot of cash laying around that they need to do something with. You know, I I, I don't care what a company does with its own money. I don't care if a company gets big as long as they're operating honestly. If they are selling products in a competitive free market with no favoritism from the government, heck, if if they can earn 90% of the market, if they can earn a huge profit, none of it's based on coercion, more power to them. Mm -hmm. But when they're doing things like the Export-Import Bank, which is just like the sugar program, less than 1% of the people benefit from it, and the rest of us pay, but those 1% get very organized, and they give a lot of cash to the corrupt politicians. uh, I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit. In a couple minutes we have left, Uh, recently Janet Yellen uh, finally raised interest rates, 25 basis points. Um, Give us your your quick thoughts on the, the Federal Reserve and monetary policy and and interest rates i'm i'm one of these guys that wants the federal reserve to go away even though i know it's not going to but uh 
What, what, what's your thought on on uh, Yellen's monetary policy and, and interest rates? Well, I suppose the good news is that I think Janet Yellen is actually better than Bernanke. Uh, and uh, she has taken this tiny, small step to normalizing interest rates. In other mm-hmm. words, not maintaining this artificially low interest rate policy, which I think was like trying to push on a string. <laughs> it wasn't something that was uh, you know that good for uh, was goosing the economy at all. Not that I think we should try to fine tune the economy anyhow. Right. But ultimately, ultimately, in my fantasy world, and maybe yours based on what you said, wouldn't it be good if we just got the central bank out of the business of money and had a system of competitive currencies? And I've mm-hmm. written about that on my blog as well. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think free market ought to apply to the currencies, to the interest rates, everything. Let the market reach equilibrium on its own, and there may be some bumps and grinds, but uh, overall, I think we'd be a lot better off if if uh, government didn't try to uh, manipulate things so much. Well, we definitely did not have the very uh, unstable boom bust cycle uh, before the Fed that we've had since mm-hmm. the Fed. Yeah, that's. That's absolutely right. But a hundred-year institution, and you know the founders of that or the creators are very smart in naming it the Federal Reserve because then it sounds like a a part of the federal government that we can't get rid of. So, uh, um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's interesting to watch the actions there. Well, the, don't forget, Ronald Reagan said the nearest thing to eternal life. Uh, that we'll ever know is a government program. (laughs) That's absolutely right. We've been speaking with Dan Mitchell from the Cato Institute. He's a senior fellow over there specializing in fiscal policy, tax reform, international tax competition, and and government spending. Dan, I really appreciate uh, you spending some time with us today. Uh, It's been a while since we talked. I hope we don't go uh, 16, 18 months before we talk again. Once again, thank you so much for your time, and I hope we can... uh, Tap you on the shoulder again soon. All right, looking forward to it. I appreciate it. Good work over at Cato. Up next, a Christmas tradition that uh, I can't live without. That's right, peanuts. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, it's hard to believe it's been 50 years since a Charlie Brown Christmas was first aired. Uh, Either sadly or proudly, I've probably seen it every year for those 50 years. Um, Started in 1965, and it was interesting because there was a producer that uh, came to uh, Charles M. Schultz. Uh, who represented um, one of his clients was Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola wanted to put together a Christmas program that was animated to to sponsor and air on TV. So uh, Mendelssohn and uh, uh, the director, uh, Bill Melendez, and Charles Schultz got together, put the show together in just a couple of months. And uh, they, they made it very different, of course, for those of you that have seen it, and I'm sure everybody has seen it. But they took out the laugh track and put in a jazz score, okay, which has become uh, very famous, uh, especially the Linus and Looney, uh, Li- oh, scratch that, especially the Linus and Lucy uh, theme song. 
And one of the big things of the the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas was Linus's uh, uh, explanation of Christmas, where he uh, quoted uh, Bible verses out of the Gospel of Luke. Now, the creative partners voiced uh, a lot of concern to to Schultz about that, who replied uh, simply, "If we don't do it, who will?" When they produced, uh, when they uh, showed it to the executives at CBS, uh, the execs hated it. Uh, they said the Bible thing scares us, which sounds like something that would be said today. But this was back in 1965. Fortunately, it was too late to change. Too late to change, so they had to air it. And uh, more than 15 million viewers tuned in at the time. It won an Emmy for children's programming in 1966. And Coca-Cola, the main sponsor, read a lot of letters or got a lot of letters um, praising them for having the courage to sponsor not only an excellent product, but one that included uh, some religious overtones. To this day, the show is still well-received. Seven, eight million people watch it every year, and people look forward to it. Uh, as part of the Christmas tradition. And it's it's fascinating to watch because the story is purposeful characters, um, simple, nothing fancy, no fancy computer algorithms. Pixar did not do this. Um, no sexual overtones, no double entendre jokes, none of that. It is innocent, and it's enjoyable. The problem is not everybody feels that way. And there's a school in Kentucky. I'm sure you heard about this. Glenn Beck was was talking about this. But they needed to take out, they decided to take out all religious references must be removed from the Christmas programs. Now, they put on a, a play called A Charlie Brown Christmas where they essentially did the, the uh, TV show, only they did it in a play form. Well, they had to, they were instructed to remove the scene where Linus shares the true meaning of Christmas by reading the Gospel of Luke. And the superintendent confirmed that. And the district had received, the reason they pulled it out was the district had received one, count them, one complaint. So, Glenn Beck got a hold of this, and, and, he, and it tells you the power of radio. He, he said, you know, if I was there um, and one of the parents, when the question was asked, what's the true meaning of Christmas, I, as a parent, would get all the other parents to stand up and read the verse and answer the question. Well, oddly enough, that's exactly what happened. When the play was being presented, um, and it came time for Linus to make his speech and was asked, what's the true meaning of Christmas? All these parents stood up and read the verse out loud. And, of course, it disrupted the play to some extent. And some, some uh, you know, self-righteous do-gooders were, were complaining, I wish they would have let the children finish the play. Okay, well, that's the end of the play anyway. I understand that. But I I, th I find it 
mildly satisfying. Now, those of you that, that listen to me, I don't take sides on the religious um, uh, aspect of anything. That, to me, is up to each individual personally. I do take exception to censorship and to uh, stifling of free speech, uh, that kind of stuff in the name of political correctness. And one person, one person gets a hair up their hind end, and it, and it causes a whole school system to change their their uh, Christmas program, uh, which is probably called simply a holiday program, not a Christmas program, but it should be a Christmas program. Um, I, th- then I have a problem. And this example, uh, what happened here, I think, is a, a living proof of American exceptionalism. I read about this from uh, an article written by Rick Moran uh, on American Thinker. Rick Moran writes some great stuff. And it gave an opportunity for parents to not only right or wrong and stand up for free speech, but they did it in front of their kids. And that is huge to have that simple act of defiance that one person tried to deny people of a heritage and in, in, in the, the tradition of Christmas. None of these kids are going to grow up scarred because they wrote a, read a, a Bible verse. You remember last week we talked about the, uh, I think it was in Virginia, the school where the teacher was asking, uh, telling the kids to write um, uh, verses out of the Koran and uh, the uproar for that and the backpedaling and the apologizing and the non-apologizing and the defiant. I mean, it was silly, absolutely silly. But there was clearly an underlying politically correct agenda with that versus a traditional Christmas play. And I think that's the the distinction we need to make here is Charlie Brown Christmas isn't out there to to be anything other than what it is, just a simple story and not be a indoctrination uh, a brainwashing, a a uh, politically correct acceptance level, or anything like that. It just is what it is, and it's part of our heritage. It, it's been around for fifty years. My goodness, absolutely unbelievable that it's been that long. Um, Charles Schultz has had a great, great influence on America over the years. I remember as a one Christmas present, my mom got me a book called The Parables of Peanuts. And I still have the book. I haven't read it in a long time. But one thing I remember out of it that seemed to resonate with me, and I'll leave you with this thought, is that uh, Charlie Brown was talking to uh, uh, Lucy at her psychiatric stand, and he said to her, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you don't love mankind. And Lucy had the greatest line. It said, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. And uh, I've remembered that since the time I was 10 years old. I think my mom uh, got me that book. So uh, uh, I'm not really in that mode. I like people, but uh, um, they're just days. 
So I hope you had a great Christmas. New Year's coming up. Be careful and enjoy the new year. Next week, we will talk about 2015 and my expectation of 2016. It's going to be a great year. Can't wait. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.